worship the Lord at church. I'm thankful that you're here to worship the Lord today at church, and I'm glad to have a holy book granted us by God to read from, and I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 25, for a sermon that will be based on chapters 25, 26, and 27. If you turn there with me now, or you can follow along on the screen for the selections that will be read this morning during the sermon, or at least repeated for our service leader, read the key verses in these chapters for our understanding today during the earlier part of the service. I've been lost before. It can be a bit of a scary thing. I've been lost in some places I didn't want to be lost at. Sometimes I've just simply lost, got turned around. You know, if you've ever been lost, that finding your way home, figuring out how to get there, getting a map to get there, is a joyous encouragement. Perhaps your mind takes you to a time when you were lost and when you needed to find your way. Thinking theologically, the human race, us, we've been lost from our Creator God. And the desert tabernacle is sort of like a blueprint that points the way home. It's like a piece of a map pointing you to the pearl of great price, the treasure, and to the homecoming. J.B. Fesco said it like this concerning our text today. He said, the Old Testament tabernacle, which is what we're, we've been reading about in our, in our service so far in Exodus 25 and following, the Old Testament tabernacle, and then later the temple in Solomon's day, King Solomon's day, he describes it like this. He says, it is a shadowy picture of Christ and the church. It's a shadowy picture of Christ and the church. So my prayer is that you'll be filled with hope and assurance knowing that Jesus Christ, the true tabernacle, has come to redeem His people, living stones, and unite us to Him, the one true foundation, so that we would become the eternal temple or tabernacle of the living God. This is why to intentionally get ahead in the story. This is why Jesus self-proclaims something greater than the temple or the tabernacle. I'm connecting those two, the tabernacle being the mobile tent and the front runner to the temple. Something greater than the temple is here in Matthew 12, 6. Or he says things like, destroy this temple in John chapter 2, and I will, I will raise it again in three days. And the Jewish people protested. The leaders said, it's taken us 46 years to rebuild this temple mount. You're going to build it back up and three days, but Jesus, of course, was speaking of the temple of his body to rise again on the third day. And Jesus' apostles remember that Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of the temple and the tabernacle. He's the chief cornerstone of the new temple, as is shared in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, on the building up of the church. So when we make these assertions about these texts applying to Christians, we're not saying anything that the Bible doesn't say. So rewind the, the film of history and of salvation just a little bit 
knowing a preview of where it's going because of the verses I just recited. And imagine yourself 3,500 years ago at the foot of a mountain called Sinai, having been delivered from Egypt by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm, God having made himself known, fed you bread from heaven so you could have something to eat, been your protector and your provider to sum it up in short, and through his current mediator, Moses, he's giving you instruction now, making himself more known again, now that you're all east of Eden, and he's moving us back westward toward him. And he's doing it through speaking to Moses, but these words were meant to be heard by all of the people, including us now. Now we have read 35 of the 98 verses, which is just a sampling of Exodus 25, 26, and 27. I would urge you to read it on your own after the service, um, maybe fight the urge to just read it straight through instead of listening to the sermon, which I would be tempted to do if I were setting where you're setting because I've done it before. Uh, but I think it might serve you better if you listen to the sermon and then go read it, uh, unless, of course, you've already read it. It might prompt a, a reread because these chapters and this sampling of verses is a detailed blueprint. It's instructions for constructing the tabernacle, the desert tabernacle, which occurred in the events of Exodus 35 to 40. After the tragic misuse of the plunder from the Egyptians, where they build a gold for, for they build a golden calf as an idol when Moses comes down from the mountain. That's recorded in Exodus 32. We will see that God then allows for the construction of the tabernacle that He's giving instructions for in our text today. And that construction section, which is highly repetitive, comes in Exodus 35 to 40. Lord willing, Pastor Kurt will preach Exodus 28 to 30, which is the priestly section of our little subsection here of Exodus 25 to 30 next week. So with, with that backdrop, which is easily forgotten, let me just simply say we're looking at Exodus 25, 26, and 27. It's about the desert tabernacle, and it's about how God gives his people what his people need in order to experience his presence. Maybe three questions will help us with our sermon today. Three questions from the tabernacle instruction text to get us to today and will help us perhaps find greater faith in the true tabernacle, which is Christ, whom brings hope and assurance for weary pilgrims trying to make it all the way home. Here's the three questions. The first question that we'll address is, where did the contributions come from? Where did the contributions come from? Second question that we'll address is, what did the construction consist of? What did the construction consist of? And the third question we're going to address this morning is, what did consecration allow for? What did consecration allow for? So the first question of the three that I hope will help us dig into Christ as the true tabernacle, and by understanding more what happened 3,500 years ago in the desert, we want to consider where did the contributions come from? Let your eyes look back at the text of Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 to 7. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. Now just pause for just a moment, we'll keep reading, but just notice the word contribution. Our question, the first one we want to try to answer, is where did the contributions come from? They're being asked to, to give a contribution, to take a contribution. Where did it come from? And let's hear a little bit more about the nature of this giving, this heartfelt giving, now by reading more of the verses that you've already heard. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you will receive from them. And he goes in to talk about commodities here. He's gold, silver, bronze, 
blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linens, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, and for the ephod and for the breast piece. We'll just stop right there for now. The Lord speaks to the people through Moses. And we have these words in our scripture today now written down because Moses was a writer. We find that's inspired by God. The very finger of God writes on tablets of stone, stones that sadly will be broken and have to be remade. We read about it at the end of Exodus 31. The Lord speaks to the people through Moses. And they are glad to take a contribution. They're glad to. They take a contribution. And this is to be a motive of the heart contribution, and it's to be for the Lord. The contributions are, are common things. It's, it's, it's metals and, and yarn and linens and animal skins and wood and oil and spices and stones for the priestly garments and more. It's expensive things like gold and silver and bronze. In the end, the text tells us that the people gladly give more than what is needed. They actually have to be told and instructed, you don't have to give anymore now. We're good. You're good. You can keep your stuff. Would that we would be so smitten by the presence of God that the churches would be so filled in our day and the presence of God in our midst would be so apparent that we would never be grudging in our giving. We would always be glad that the ministry and the mission of the Lord would be fully funded. These contributions were from the heart, but I must admit from reading Exodus and thinking about our time, it can be easier to give money than to give fidelity. It can be easier to give money than to give fidelity. For these same people that were cheerful in their giving of these contributions to build the tabernacle would also be the people that would use their gold to make a calf and to use that calf to idolatrously worship God, the, God, the gods with treacherous consequences because of their treason against the one true God that had made himself known to them. So fidelity can sometimes be more difficult than simple contributions. I believe when we read a text like today that we see how God cares about not only who we worship, Him, but how we worship. He wants to be worshipped in certain ways. And He wants to be worshipped with the why of the heart. He wants your motive to be, to be pure before Him. But again, our question, where did these contributions come from, lingers. And the answer, which some of you may well have already pieced together, is they came from the Egyptians. The Israelites, against all odds, plundered the Egyptians on their way out of the Egyptian land. You remember the first part of Exodus, particularly chapters 1 through 18, that recounts this whole story. And in summary, God gave them an exit or an exodus from Egypt. And God made such an impression on the, the slaveholders, on the Egyptians, that some likely converted to following the one true God. And also, most of them gave away riches and animals and pots and pans and precious metals just to get them out of Egypt. You remember the plagues that were wreaking havoc and bringing death and destruction to Egypt. So God with His people was devastating to God's enemies. And it always has been. And it always will be. And if you read the prophetic literature, and particularly the prophetic book at the end of the 66 books, you find that the enemies of God can't stand the presence, the judgment of God. They're crushed under the weight of His glory. 
And I just want to invite you early and often in this sermon this morning, if you're an enemy of God by refusing to have faith in Him, I would invite you to have faith in Him today. Faith is a gift. Faith is important. Faith is for you. So receive it. Receive faith. Trust God. Against all pressure, against all exasperating bewilderment, throw yourself at the mercy of God. Trust God. It's so very important because to be an enemy of God is to be crushed on the day of the Lord's manifold presence. Now, particularly when the time frame occurred of which we're talking in Exodus, it had been 430 years in coming. So it's very important that as the people of God that we don't get arrogant, that we don't set timetables, that we don't lose our sober-mindedness for the sake of our prayers about the might and power of God and Him working on behalf of His people. But we still must understand a principle in its ironclad. God is always at work for His people. Always. He's always at work for His people. Always. And if you are His people by faith, He is at work for you. Always. God's always for His people. Now, His work for us may not be the way we draw it out. The Bible says that all things work for the good for those who trust in the Lord. It doesn't mean that all things are good. It doesn't mean that all things feel good. It doesn't mean we don't have dark night of our soul, as some theologians call it. It doesn't mean we don't have difficult, treacherous times. It just means that those times do not convey our lack of faith and His lack of reliability. Those difficult times of which we must walk through we must walk through. Scripture talks about how our suffering is something that God allows certain Christians to go through. Almost as if he's, it's, a, it's a stewardship of trust, the way Colossians talks about it. That we might fill up the afflictions of Christ as His body. There's an interconnectedness. And so when we talk about and offer sincere warnings to the enemies of God and all those that do not have faith in the Lord Christ are enemies of God. We also must remain unarrogant. And we must realize that in this life there will be troubles. But take heart, for the Lord Jesus Christ says, I have overcome the world. God is at work for His people. You and I have nothing to contribute to the Lord's work. Not gifts of the Spirit, nor tangible contributions. Nothing, lest God delivered us and gave us capacity and stuff to begin with. That's why the Bible says, what do I have in 1 Corinthians 4, 7? What do I have that I have not received? And I ask you today, what do you have that you have not received? Nothing. It's a faithless statement to think that you have your capacity to credit for what you have. It's a faithless statement to think that you have your work ethic to credit for what you have. It's a faithless statement to think that you have contributed to what you have without God first giving you something to contribute with. God has done it for you. That's why you have matter to work with. It's why you have the skills that you have. I wonder if you would recognize where the contributions came from and where your contributions really come from. And I wonder if in that, if you would give your talents to the Lord's work more cheerfully, more willingly. I wonder if any pride in you to do menial tasks for the Lord would, would fall by the wayside. I wonder if you're too scared to explore public ministry of the Word. I wonder if this truth would help you overcome your fear. I wonder if you're too busy to discipline yourself, to, to use time to develop your skill, 
so that in time you may be used of the Lord in His work. I wonder if this text might help you with that. The tabernacle is a testament to God's people realizing where their stuff came from and then gladly giving accordingly. I wonder if you would give your stuff in addition to your talents or your talents in addition to your stuff depending on where you fall with the difficulty there. The Bible describes a tithe or a tenth as a a benchmark, to be sure, but not as a stopping point for the riches that we have. How does it compare to the riches of the glory of Christ? Would you see the top of the week, the Lord's Day, Sunday, and the top of your paycheck as God's too? You know, if not gladly, then I am not here to coerce my intent as God, I've prayed, as my witness is not selfish. This is a sermon about what the text says about glad contributing, among other things. But if the next step in God-centered living for you is to gladly contribute, I ask you, is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? The contributions came from God. Number two. Question, what did the construction consist of? What is it? What did the construction of the tabernacle, and by extension later, the fixed temple, what did it consist of? The entire tabernacle, the whole thing, I read this week in the ESV study Bible. It's a good study Bible if you need one. I read that the entire tabernacle is 45, was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. So 45 feet long, if you just kind of, I mean, you could step it off. You know, a man's gape is usually about three feet. You can kind of think about it. 45 feet long, five feet wide, and 15 feet high. Not super big. It, skeletal structure is wooden, was wooden. It's overlaid with gold. There's no, no solid roof or front wall. There were five wooden bars overlaid with gold that passed through rings attached to each frame. And the data for this is in our chapters. And we find this construction, it consisted of certain parts. To summarize it, it was a simple layout. You had the ark, which included the mercy seat, the table with its furniture, the lampstand, the curtains of the tabernacle, You had a veil for the Holy of Holies, the altar for the burnt offerings, the court of the tabernacle, and then the oil for the lamps. Described linearly, those words, which we'll go back through, flow out of Exodus 25 to 27. Let's look at it on its parts. What did the construction consist of? Just take Exodus 25, 10, and 11 to kind of get us started here in looking at these parts. It says here that Moses gave the word of the Lord to the people that they should make an ark of acacia wood. That they would be about the business of building, of constructing the tabernacle. These instructions say the ark would be made of wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Verse 11 says you shall overlay it with pure gold. This is expensive. It's costly. Pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. So the ark was a small chest in a small space. The best metal covered the innermost part of the tabernacle. This is called the most holy place. And there were restrictions for who could enter. The ark was of the covenant. It was the ark of the covenant. And 
it would warehouse the stone tablet, staff, and bread. Remember the importance of covenant from last week's sermon. Covenant is a way of reading the Bible of God's storyline as a whole with a continuity. And these weren't to make the covenant with wicked people. Remember at the end of Exodus chapter 23, don't make covenant with those people as you're moving on into the land, but keep covenant with the Lord your God, Exodus 24. That's what those chapters entailed. The Ark of the Covenant had a lid on it called the mercy covering or mercy seat. It's sort of like a footstool for God, for God's presence. And of course, this is all metaphorically speaking. Descriptions of God in human terms are always for our benefit and not to be considered precise. Exodus 25, 22, and reading a few verses on down there, perhaps down to 24, might help us some more get a sampling. There I will meet with you, keywords for this sermon a little later, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, keyword their testimony too, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. Verse 24. If you jump ahead to verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence. And bread might start kind of getting your sanctified mind thinking a little bit in terms of the scope and sequence of the Bible. You shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, so there's skill involved. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Its flowers. Scholars kind of connect that with visual imagery of the trees in the Garden of Eden. Consider verse 37 of Exodus 25. You shall make seven lamps for it. Seven might be going off in your mind as an important number. And the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. So as to give light for the lamps. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. Pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold and see that you make them after the pattern, after the pattern for them. There's a pattern, which is being shown you on the mountain. A pattern shown on the mountain. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Cherub. Cherubim. We've heard this in Genesis. Guarding the way to where? What does it sound like? Eden. You can't get back in. After Adam and Eve sinned, we were cast east of Eden. The entrance to the tabernacle was designed to make you walk westward. From the world into the outer courts, then for the consecrated priests into the holy place and then into the most holy place. It sounds like Sinai with only so many could go up so far. It sounds like Eden 
in terms of the banishment with a small promise of the gospel to come, also embedded in those very first chapters of the Bible. Thinking of the parts here within the construction itself, let's just take it granularly for a second or two. The table had bread on it. The lamp stand looked like a tree. We said that. The seven lamps is interesting, I said, because seven is a number of completion in the Bible, like seven days in creation. The seventh day, the Lord rested, giving us a, an example of Sabbath. Even used in this text to frame Exodus 25 to 31 is seven statements. Some theologians see as it's read out. Seven is prominent in the Bible, even in the book of Revelation to describe the completeness of the church's witness to the watching world. If you will read Revelation 2 and 3, kind of quickly looking at the heavens, you'll count not one, not two, not three, not four, but seven churches, lamps standing, being warned that, that their lamps shouldn't go out, and how they should live and behave and believe in order to be faithful to their Lord. So the correlation is obvious. The work required skill. And skill, as we've said, is given as a gift from God. Praise God for the skill that you have. In the text that, Lord willing, Pastor Kurt will preach, what you'll find is there's some very skilled people there that God had gifted to do some very specific things. Not to delve into that so much as just to say here that they were to build the tabernacle, that it was a project that the community was invested in, and that the people were skilled for the work of building the Lord's house. And you are skilled for the work to build the Lord's house. Let not your seemingly small part ignore the data in 1 Corinthians 12 where it says, even the most modest parts are important and they're giving, given a sense of more importance because of their modesty. Every part of the body of Christ is important to the building up of the body of Christ. The construction of the church the household of God. It's important that we are engaged. That's why I'm so glad you're here to hear these sermons from Exodus, to make parallel between the desert tabernacle and Christ, the true tabernacle. Meditate on the costliness of redemption with us today. What did it cost God to bring redemption that this house might be built? Meditate on beauty as well. We don't talk often enough about beauty alongside what is true and what is good. But beauty is a gift from God. It is true that creativity in the wrong direction can lead to violations of God's instructions on how He wants to be worshipped. That's true. And it's no small thing. You can die for worshipping God wrongly and especially with the wrong attitude. God deserves your heartfelt praise and worship. But God did give the gift of creativity, to be sure. And he made the items to craft this beautiful furniture in this tabernacle, too. And though they were nomadic, they traveled around. Portable was this tent until temple times, until they were firmly in the land. And this tabernacle, even though it was portable, was no shabby tent. It was ornate, as you hear from these descriptions. It was made out of a whole cloth, as far as the cover. It could be made into one unit, though its parts could be carried. had to be carried by the priest and had to be done in accordance with the rules. But it was portable, this tabernacle. And this tabernacle is a pattern 
an imprint. It's planned. Remember the exactness language we've heard so far. This is like heaven come down. This is God telling us things about himself and his attributes, his attributions, his character, and his plan for us. Consider Exodus 26, 30 through 37 for more of these parts about this construction, what it consists of, and what it means for us. There it says, Then you shall erect the tabernacle. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it. According to plan. There's a plan for it. That you were shown on the mountain. God showed Moses a glimpse of heavenly worship, and he was to bring that here for communication with his people. Verse 31, And you shall make a veil, a veil, important language, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. These, these are not like children, they're like guarding angels, powerful. And you shall hang it on four pillars of the acacia, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil. And the ark is sometimes called the testimony, the ark of the covenant. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You see these levels of holiness, these different sections in the tabernacle. It says in verse 34, you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil, outside, and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle, opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. And you shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent. So it says screened in entrance to enter, going westward. And it's of blue and purple and scarlet yarn, yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. I'm going to read chapter 27, verses 1 to 3 next, but let me just say, embroidery work is right here in the Bible. just thought we might want to note that. And also, I was reading about the cost of yarn to them, and it's not just as easy as going to Hobby Lobby. This yarn would have been costly. It would have taken a lot of, a lot of material. It would have taken a lot of work. Um, to not get too far into the details of it. And so yarn was, was costly. This is a costly project, this construction. It's a costly project. What this construction consisted of was costly to them. And just to say, in our service to the Lord, there is a cost involved in discipleship. But it's a cost well worth paying because he's given us all the materials to do it. And what higher cost could ever be paid than what cost he's paid for us? Considering with the text, chapter 27, verses 1, 2, and 3, you shall make the altar, the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its Ashes and shovels and basins and forks and firepans, you shall make all of its utensils of bronze. So you, this, you, you see this um, gold, silver, bronze as you're going from the most holy place to the holy place to the outer courts into the world. You see this tabernacle is reflective of these levels of holiness and entering closer and closer into the presence of God, getting more and more holy 
more and more prized, more and more glory. And even then, there was to be uh, incense from the censer that would kind of defray the overall glory of God from the high priest that would enter. Or when, when Moses would enter, you see the smoke is sort of a, uh, an indication of the closeness of the presence of God, and yet just so far, just so close. And when we think about these fresh levels of entrances to the most holy place, it really frames how we ought to be thinking about our access through the new covenant. But we'll get to that in a few more moments. Think, think about here atonement. Think about the horns. You may remember uh, Joab for one. I believe Adonijah, Adonijah, another one, where they would go in and hold on to the horns and they would use that to indicate begging for mercy. They were begging for mercy. So mercy is directly associated with the artifacts of the, of the tabernacle and later the temple. The New Testament word associated with this is propitiation. And it's an important $10 word, propitiation. It means a substitute type sacrifice for sins, to make atonement. We find that word used a few places in the New Testament. Hebrews, John, 1 John, Romans. It's, the usages of them are important, and the indication of the concept spans far beyond just those four verses. The idea of atonement is rooted here. And of course, other aspects of the Torah in the Old Testament explains more about sacrifice. But those passages in the Bible, that you can read them with more eagerness and consistency and more joy if you understand the background and how atonement was pointing to an ultimate atonement. Where the weight of sin is matched only by the weight of glory. The only way that holiness, our unholiness could be overcome is by God's sheer mercy. That's what atonement is. So we beg for mercy too. And that's where we find it. The construction consisted of the ark, the table, the bread, the lampstand, the curtains, the veil, and then the altar, the court of the tabernacle, with a footnote at the end of 27 about the oil for the lamps to keep them burning ongoingly. The light would be shining on and on. So we've seen our first two questions about the contributions in the construction. Now thirdly and finally, let's consider our third question, what did consecration allow for? What did, what, what did consecration allow for? And it, it allowed for this propitiation concept to come into play, for life, for presence of God. Um, it, it, it allowed for humanity to start to see a glimpse of how we get back into relationship with God ultimately and finally. Think about the, the last three verses we'll read aloud from Exodus is Exodus 27, 19 to 21. Just hear them afresh. It says, All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So you remember this going out, verse 20, so now we're to bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set to burn. In the tent of meeting... Outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. And they take forever to mean as long as this covenant is intact. Now listen for a moment or two about this text and consider. This was a statute forever, meaning so long as this covenant was in place, 
And what do we take from it, and what covenant is in place now? Most commentators take a summary kind of approach to this, similar to what the ESV Study Bible does. I'm just going to read you a short section from them and point you there. And also would point you to the ESV Study Bible because of the wonderful pictorial images of what this tabernacle would have been, would, would have looked like specifically. It's hard to get that from mere words, and so those could be helpful to you um, in the days ahead. Here's what they say, though. There are important keys to understanding the symbolism of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is seen as a tented palace for Israel's divine king. A tented palace for Israel's divine king. He is enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant in the innermost holy of holies, or called the most holy place. The royalty, his royalty is symbolized by the purple of the curtains and his divinity by the blue. The closer items are to the, holy, to the Holy of Holies, the more valuable are the metals, bronze and then silver and then gold, of which they are made. The other symbolic dimension is Eden. The tabernacle, like the Garden of Eden, is where God dwells, and various details of the tabernacle suggest it is a mini-Eden. You remember the menorah the, the almost looks like trees and flowers in the garden, almond trees in the text there. These parallels include east-facing entrance guarded by cherubim, the gold, the tree of life, or the lampstand, and the tree of knowledge, the law. Thus, God's dwelling in the tabernacle was a step toward the restoration of paradise, which was lost, which is to be completed in the new heavens and the new earth. And we read about that in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, where God is present with his people forevermore, where the light of the new Eden is Christ himself, and where he will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death and pain will be no more. So presence of divinity is coming. Presence of divinity has come, and presence of divinity is coming again. And atonement is key. This is all about how a holy God can prove himself a merciful God. Two things that don't seem to go together in our understanding of things going together. It drives toward the one who came and tabernacled among us. And I use that language intentionally. Because in the Gospel of John, chapter 114, verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. A fair translation. Dwelt or tabernacled among us. It drives toward the day of the cross when, as Matthew 27 says and captures, the veil was torn in two and the most holy place became open by faith to all who would believe. The inauguration of the new covenant in Christ's blood was a once-for-all sacrifice to open up access Access for every believer from every nation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The tabernacle edifice, and in particular the ark with the mercy seat, points to Christ the tabernacle, pure gold. There's no way to overstate the importance of it. And Exodus 25, 8 and 9 really summarizes it well. If I could go back one more time to this text. It says, "...and let them make me a sanctuary." "...make me a sanctuary." that I may dwell in their midst. A lot of summary there. Make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly, verse 9, as I show you, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. For all the joy that they must have had working for the Lord, and for all the joy that we might have, we cannot see but a part of the picture he's painting. He is making a great big picture. Or... A, a great big finished map. He's getting us all the way home. And it's for His glory. And it's for your good too. But it's all about God. 
God's moving us back to his presence. He's taking us as his people to a new Eden. And the new covenant produces a church of spirit-filled believers who are acting on his behalf, serving as priests to the nations, taking the gospel of the good news of the offer of his abiding presence to all who will receive it. Will you receive it? Will you receive that offer? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the very power of God. I will never forget having received this foolish message and seeing all the wisdom in it. And the intent of preaching is that you might receive and live in the faith of the gospel. It's good news for you. Christ came and tabernacled among us, and that's the reason for all the healings and all the wrongs made right and all the truth-telling that Jesus did. And he's coming again, and when he tabernacles among us again, he's going to heal everyone and fix everything. And what you do not want to be is an enemy of God. What you do not want to be is on the outside looking in. You must have faith in Christ. In conclusion, I can think of no better summary than the Bible itself. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, the very last verse of chapter 8. And then chapter 9, verses 1 to 12, says it well. Hear the word of the Lord. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready, ready to vanish away. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness and to be sure, holiness is important for us, isn't it? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We have regulations for our worship. But he wants to make an argument. And here's how he tells it. Speaking and thinking of Exodus 25. He says, in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence is called the holy place. But the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Verse 5. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. We know why, right? There's a lot of detail in Exodus 25 to 31. But he says this of it. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. The, the first section, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. But, I love the word but in the Bible. I just love it. 
verse that David read earlier, but God being rich in mercy. Find the but right here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Can you say amen? Let us pray. God, now we take about a minute before you and just consider this text and our need ongoingly for faith in you. We consider, consider what you might have for us from this, for this week and for our lives.